morning, uh, Philip reminded us that uh, this Sunday is called Low Sunday. Uh, And it's called Low Sunday because it follows the High Festival of Easter. Well, if you were here last Sunday evening, we certainly finished on a high. And that was a tremendous celebration of Easter. But now we're supposed to feel a little low. And you can see how this might happen. We've come up to Easter through the 40 days of Lent. We have uh, followed the drama of Holy Week, of the betrayal and the trial, that mock trial of Jesus the agony of his crucifixion, we may have watched for one hour at the cross on Good Friday. And then comes Sunday and the glorious resurrection. Happy ending. And we all love a happy ending. Is that it? Easter, done and dusted for another year? Do we feel perhaps a little bit deflated after last week's celebration? The difficulty is that when you come to the Bible, the resurrection is not the end of anything, it's the beginning of everything. Mark Ashton, the rector at Cambridge for many years in a large Anglican church there, died on Easter Saturday 2010, a year ago. He died from cancer and he'd been given six to nine months notice of his death. And in that time he wrote a very helpful little booklet called On My Way to Heaven. And as it happens in the current issue of the UCCF magazine, there are extracts from that book. The whole theme of that magazine is hope. I hope you've been reading it. But this is what he said. It has been a disappointment to discover how many fellow believers struggle to grasp the strength of the Christian hope. So it is with Christians as well as non-believers that I've tried to share the good news of the resurrection. Peter knew that hope. When Christ died, that was the end of his hope. He never had time to make it up with his Lord. And if you think about it, every single morning that was to follow when that wretched cock would crow, he would remember how he had denied his Lord. And yet we find six weeks later on the day of Pentecost, Peter standing before a great crowd celebrating 
the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, telling the crowd what God has done. God accredited this Jesus of Nazareth by many wonders and signs and miracles which he's done before all of you. You know that you were witnesses to these things. God delivered up Jesus to the cross. God raised him from the dead because it was impossible for death to hold him. It had nothing over him. God exalted him to his Father's right hand. And he has poured out this Holy Spirit which you are now witnessing. And when we come to that passage which we read earlier in Acts chapter 3, and he comes before that uh, crowd who have gathered after the healing, he says this, verse 15, You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And verse 19, Repent then and turn to God. So that, there are three things, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Hope took on the form of past, present and future. Sins forgiven, refreshment from the Lord, the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. Leslie Newbegin, and I was greatly blessed by just one sentence from his writings, when he said this, he's dealing with those who downplay the resurrection, even theologians who try to fit it into their own world view, what is plausible, what is acceptable. And he says this, it is obvious that the story of the empty tomb cannot be fitted into our contemporary world view or indeed into any worldview except one of which it is the starting point. That's a wonderful recognition of truth. That is indeed the whole point. What happened on that day is according to the Christian tradition only to be understood by analogy with what happened on the day the cosmos came into being. But, and this is the whole point, accepted in faith, it becomes the starting point for a wholly new way of understanding our human experience. That the crucified Jesus was raised from death to be the first fruit of a new creation. Peter had a new world view. A view that shapes all his thinking. And he'd come to that view in six weeks. I've been greatly challenged, you know, by that word living that we find in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. 
We've been born again into a living hope. Something, something that is lively. Something that is growing and developing. So that the older we get, the clearer and firmer that hope ought to be. Yet I see Peter's hope after six weeks. And my hope after more than 50 years as a Christian. And I am ashamed. I am ashamed of that. And you shortly to go to the opticians. And I knew need a new pair of bifocals. I need them desperately, actually. My wife has very focals. But we need resurrection focals. We need to see everything in the light of the resurrection. No wonder Paul prays that the eyes of our heart may be enlightened. That we might know the hope to which he has called us. You can't be optimistic if you've got a misty optic. Now, if you turn in 1 Peter, which is page 1217, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter doesn't just say, now you can live with hope. Now you have a hope. He says you've been born again into a new sphere, into a living hope that affects all your thinking. You live in the sphere of hope. And that is not a hope so kind of hope. It doesn't matter which Sheffield team you support. You know what a hope so kind of hope is. So do I. I support Middlesbrough. And every season you have great hopes. And then. That's a hope so kind of hope. When I was a student... In London, I had the great privilege of sitting under the ministry of Dr. Lloyd-Jones. And every Sunday evening, he would finish in prayer, and that prayer would always, as far as I can recollect, would always contain two phrases. He would speak of our short, uncertain, earthly pilgrimage and our sure and certain hope. And it didn't matter what you'd been thinking about that evening. You went out knowing that life was short, life was uncertain, but you had a sure and certain hope. What is it? What is this hope that relates to past, present and future? Well, first of all, we can be sure of our forgiveness Jesus has risen. In verse 2, Peter speaks of the 
sprinkling with Christ's blood. That's taking us back to the time when in the Old Testament Israel was set aside as the covenant nation and they entered into a covenant agreement and bulls were sacrificed and half of the blood was sprinkled on the people and half of the blood on the altar. It sealed that covenant. And Peter is picking that up, but thinking about the blood of the new covenant. And in verse 19 of this chapter, he puts it like this, you have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. You see, the resurrection confirms that we've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. How do I know my sins are forgiven? Jesus has risen. A number of years ago, there used to be a television um, advertisement. The Man from Del Monte. I don't know how many of you remember that, but I remember it quite vividly. It showed you a village, uh, either in Portugal or um, Italy, and it was the harvest time. And all the villagers were wondering, anticipating how the man from Del Monte would assess their fruit. And this big limousine draws up and out comes the man. And he goes around and he's squeezing and he's testing the oranges and the, uh, and, uh, and the peaches. And you can see on their faces, they're so apprehensive. Everything hangs on this. And then the punchline comes. The man from Del Monte, he say yes. And their faces are beaming. Now in a sense, our whole salvation hangs in the balance from Friday to Sunday. Jesus has made great claims of what he was going to do in overcoming sin and overcoming death. But will he? And on the third day, the Father in heaven, he say yes. Wonderful. You see, the cross makes us safe. The resurrection makes us sure. The cross makes us safe. The resurrection makes us sure. Paul puts it like this. He was delivered for our sins and raised again for our justification. Now if the Father says yes, who are you to say no? It's so easy, isn't it, to go down to the graveyard of forgiven sin and dig them up again. And sometimes we say, I can't believe that he has forgiven that sin 
that sin? I can't really believe it. You know, I think there are aspects of the gospel that we don't fully grasp, not because they're too hard to believe and understand, but because they're too good to be true. And we can't get our minds round it. Forgiven, forgotten, forever. It's amazing. But then grace is amazing. It really is. And Peter says, if you've truly repented, your sins are wiped away, are wiped out. I can be sure my sins are forgiven. Jesus has risen. And we can be sure of Christ's presence. Jesus now lives. The risen Jesus met with John on the Isle of Patmos. You have the record in the first chapter of Revelation. And John says, verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. What a lovely expression that, isn't it? What a title. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And Jesus wants to be with each one of his children. This is a fantastic truth. How can he be with each one? Geographically, how is it possible? It is possible through the Holy Spirit which he has sent. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus who indwells every believer just as though Jesus were with each one. God sent forth his Son into the world. God sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. In chapter 3 and verse 15, Peter says this. In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. My books have gone through many quite radical prunings, particularly of recent days, my wife will tell you. But there's one little book that I've had since 1959 that survived every pruning. How to Live in Christ by W.E. Sangster. There are Methodists with us this evening. (laughs) What a great blessing he was to many. And he simply goes through the day telling us what it means to live with Christ. And this is the little section on waking. He says, Cultivate the custom of linking your Lord and yourself with we. What are we going to do together today, Lord? If it seems too familiar at first, remember that he encourages such intimacy. 
It's beyond our understanding why he should want to live in our soiled hearts, but he does. And this united life is made easier with the plural pronoun, say we. Glance ahead at the day. We're going to do everything today, Lord. See yourself going through the day with him. Meet every known duty in thought with him. Before you meet it, still with him in reality. We must make the most of that opportunity, Lord. We must be particularly watchful there, Lord. And then he goes and uh, going to work at the table, in the home, and so on. Going to work, enter your place of business or your studies with your Lord. See the people you work with through the eyes of the Saviour. You have brought Christ with you to work and your colleagues, though all unaware, are going to work with the Master. How long before they find out? He invites us to that kind of intimacy. I don't know whether it's a northern trait to speak of our siblings as our. Our Billy, you know, our Joan. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd, that chief shepherd of the sheep. Our. He invites us to intimacy. But did you notice it's the Lord Jesus Christ in every case Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. It's an awesome intimacy. But it is a real one. He wants that kind of intimacy. And you know, when you first wake, I know some of you are going through tough times at this present moment. And it's tough when you first wake on a morning, isn't it? And the, the, the activities of the day flood in upon you. And they talk to you instead of you talking to them. We need to talk to ourselves sometimes. And simply to say, for this I have Jesus. It's, it's so simple, but it's glorious. For this I have Jesus. But it's not only for our comfort that we can know the living Lord Jesus. It is there to challenge us. Next week it so happens uh, that uh, as part of a series that the missionary partnership team are doing, I have to speak on a little section from 1 Corinthians 15. It's a section that begins with uh, being baptised for the dead. So please pray for me. And it's about taking risks. And Peter says, now, if there is no resurrection, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers. 
Just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, not me, for, for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But if Christ is raised, let us take risks. Now this is the glorious truth. The Lord Jesus has taken the risk factor out of our eternal salvation in order that we might put back the risk factor in our daily living. Now this is just about the 11th hour for the church graft team. During the course of this week, Judith and I went over to Gleadless in order that we might just walk around and get the feel of the place. At least in order that we might pray intelligently. And I would simply say this, it's not forward. And it's a tough call. But it is no tougher than the call that came by Jesus sometimes called the Great Commission, to 11 men, 11 failures, 11 nobodies, and told them that they had to preach the gospel to every nation. And the only thing that brought that back into the realm of spiritual sanity are the words which Jesus spoke, surely, that's a wonderful word, surely, I will be with you always unto the end of the age. Those who go to Gleadless can be sure of this. You won't be Christless at Gleadless. Let's pray. Let's pray for one another as we... Not now. <laughs> There's a third point. <laughs> I... I'm just exhorting you to pray. Pray for those who are considering this. It is a big call. Thirdly, <laughs> we can be sure of our inheritance. Jesus will come. The end of verse 3. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. An inheritance. Into an inheritance, Peter says. That word occurs 300 times in the Old Testament, describing the inheritance of God's people in the Old Testament. The land, the promised land. And interestingly, the words perish, spoil and fade are all used of their inheritance. It will perish. The land will be invaded. They will finish up in exile. It will be spoiled or defiled. 
by idolatry, their idolatry, and the idolatry of the people of the, that are already there. And the prophets tell us it will fade like the flower of the field. But the inheritance to which it points will never perish, spoil, or fade. What is it? What is said of the land in the Old Testament becomes, in the New Testament, the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. That's how Jesus perhaps should have put it, because it's a quotation from the Psalms. No, no, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's expanded. Romans 4.13, Abraham is now the heir of the world, the cosmos. He was only the heir of the land, but now it's expanded. The earth, the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And what will it be like? Well, it will be beyond description. And that's why it's expressed in negative terms so frequently in the New Testament. The ultimate inheritance is expressed in telling us what won't be there. And, and Peter says there are three things that mar the best of life here and now. Death. Well, of course it does. Death can come early. Death can come suddenly. Death comes and spoils the closest of human relationships. It's a monster. It's a cloud hanging over us. Sin can mar the closest of relationships. Family feuds. We know them. And change. We go back to Friday Club after a break of three weeks. But I can almost guarantee we will be able to see a deterioration in the powers and the faculties of some people in three weeks. Change and decay in all around I search. And Peter says of our inheritance, death won't end it, sin won't spoil it, and time won't change it. Isn't that fantastic? That's just the negative. When will that be? Well, verse 5 tells us it will be when Jesus is revealed. And you'll see that expression also in verse 7. Jesus Christ is revealed. And verse 13, Jesus Christ is revealed. It's the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he is unveiled in all his glory. That's the framework for this passage. Now, at death, a believer is immediately in the presence of Christ, which is far better. But that is not our ultimate inheritance. When Jesus comes again, God gets physical. What God did for Jesus on the 
Easter day is a prototype of what he will do for us and for this cosmos, for this planet. He will raise our bodies. He will renew this earth. And what starts with a new birth ends with new bodies on a new creation. There's life after death, but there's life after life after death. And that is our ultimate inheritance. And is that certain? Is it a sure and certain hope that we have? Peter is shouting, yes, indeed. It's kept in heaven for you. There is a reserve ticket on it. I would love to go to the snooker tomorrow. It's been a tremendous contest, the semi-finals. There's no point in going. I haven't got a ticket. Some people have got a seat that's reserved for them. But I have got a place reserved for me in glory. And that is something that is sure I go, says Jesus, to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And not only is it kept for us, we are kept for it. We are shielded by God's power. You'll never ultimately, if you're truly saved, fall away. And just one final encouragement. The word now occurs in verse 6 and 8. Peter is always keeping our feet on the ground. And he says in verse 6, there's a now of testing. In this, in this prospect, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. He's saying we live by faith and faith lives by exercise. Faith lives by testing. Faith has got to be shown to be the genuine thing and that means it's going to be stretched at times. But then there is the now of rejoicing. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Said even now, you're sometimes so overcome, you are receiving the ultimate end of your faith. You're getting glimpses, you're getting foretastes of the glory that is to be. I think we had a foretaste of it last Sunday evening. 
when we're singing God's praise together, don't we sometimes say, it's heaven on earth. Many kinds of experiences like that. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by the wonder of God's truth as it dawns upon us. The wonder of his grace. The intimacy of our fellowship one with another. The breathtaking sight of a sunrise, a glorious sunrise. Times when we're moved to the depths of our being by some piece of music. These are foretastes, glimpses of the glory that is yet to be. That's why we're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter is saying, our inheritance is not just pie in the sky when you die. It's cake on your plate while you wait. Wonderful. Now in closing, would you turn again to chapter 3 and verse 15. Chapter 3 and verse 15. I've added this in the light of Wednesday's prayer meeting when we were thinking together of the one big question. It's an event, a series of events coming up towards the end of the year. What was the one big question that Peter anticipated would be asked of Christians then. In your heart set apart Christ as Lord, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Peter anticipates the question, what is the source of your hope? They were living in such tough and difficult times. They were scattered. They were persecuted. And in those circumstances, what is the source of your hope? Has anybody ever said to you, excuse me, your hope is showing? They haven't said it to me either. And the reason when I examine my own heart is this, so often my security is found in other than Christ. Where is your hope tonight? We can be sure of our forgiveness, of Christ's presence with us. We can be sure of a glorious inheritance. Why? Jesus rose, Jesus lives, Jesus comes. It's rather like drawing back the curtain on a dark morning, but it's bright outside, and you're in the dark room, and you draw back the curtain, and you say, the sun has risen, and I see everything in a new light. On this low Sunday, we should be able to say, the sun, S-O-N, has risen and I see everything now in a new light. And because it's a living hope, it's growing. I am growing in thankfulness for my salvation, for my sin that has been dealt with. I'm growing 
in that dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ and intimacy with him, I am growing in my anticipation of glory. And if there are some here who don't know that hope, you know, Paul has a lovely expression in Colossians. We met it a few weeks ago when he says, the hope held out to you in the gospel. 123. The hope held out to you in the gospel. Why? Because Jesus, the Savior, is held out to you in the gospel. Will you receive him if you've never done so before and begin to live in hope? Let's pray together. Mm.